Lord, still our hearts, we pray. May we know the rest of your spirit and the courage of your spirit as we listen. Embolden us, we pray. Be with us as you with the early church in Acts by your spirit. So that those fruits of your spirit will live beautifully in us. So that we can shine your light in this world. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in our series of Dangerous Faith, uh, we're looking at... uh, just really what does persecution look like, but also what do our struggles look like uh, in the light of that? And certainly uh, here is a story of great struggle for the stoning of Stephen in Acts at the end of Acts chapter 7. I'm starting reading at 54. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. When Saul was there giving approval to his death, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Thanks, Judy. I um, I just dropped off my daughter and a friend's son at um, their children's group, and they were both absolutely clung to me. And uh, one of them just said to me, God has said, stay with me this morning, don't go back to church. So I'm hoping that that was emotional manipulation of a small five-year-old rather than the Lord speaking. Um, if it ends up that it was God, I'm sorry in advance. Um, I'm going to give this to John because I can't handle technology. He's much better at clicking. Um, So today we are doing our final series looking at the Dangerous Faith uh, group of talks that we've been doing over the past few weeks as church. And we're going to take a few steps back from where Tim ended last week. So Tim spoke of kind of getting to the point where the gospel message had gone from Jerusalem to the surrounding countries and then out into the surrounding nations and across the whole world. But we're going to rewind slightly now uh, to where Judy has just read. So looking kind of back to chapter 6 and chapter 7, where the gospel message was still very much rooted in Jerusalem. Now this morning, if you're here and 
what does the gospel message mean to you? That doesn't mean anything. Maybe you're not yet a Christian. Maybe that's just not a, a message or a word that you've heard. Then I'd just love to say to you, at the end of this uh, service, we have a little booklet called Why Jesus? And really simply and beautifully, that explains what we are talking about this morning, what this good news is that we are talking of. And we would just love you to go and take one of those at the end of this service and really think for yourself about this message that we are talking of that was being shared to so many throughout the whole world. So we're rewinding, we're going to be thinking about the gospel message being rooted in Jerusalem, uh, growing fantastically and rapidly, but very much in a contained way. And we're going to think about what was it that then scattered the church, that took the church from this contained one area and began to scatter it into the surrounding nations. And as we do that, we're going to kind of think as well about where is it that Jesus has scattered each one of us? Where in our lives in the day-to-day do we find ourselves scattered sharing something of the message and the love that Jesus has given to each one of us? So as um, Judy read, we reach this point in the early church where this key tipping point happens, this key milestone of the stoning of Stephen, this awful event where someone stood up, shared a message that God had given them to many who were listening, but because of what they had shared and the threat that many perceived that message was, actually ended up being killed for their faith, as is happening daily throughout the whole world to many who share the message of Jesus. It says at the beginning of chapter eight that after this key tipping point, this key event, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. This one act, the stoning of Stephen, caused the first great persecution against the early church, where it says that Saul went from house to house, dragging men, dragging women out of their houses. People were being killed, people were being thrown in prison, people were being tortured. This was probably in some ways seen by Saul and those supporting him as an act which they hoped would end the early church that this great persecution would mean that the church that was growing so rapidly in Jerusalem would suddenly be contained and the growth would stop because who on earth would want to walk through this persecution? But instead we read that this one act became the catalyst for the start of the second part of fulfilling the great commission that Jesus left with us. That Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Tick, that was happening. But then you would be my witnesses in Judea, in Samaria, and then throughout on to the ends of the very earth. So this one act, which probably in many ways Saul hoped would end the church, became a catalyst, a key tipping point for an incredible sharing and spreading and scattering of the gospel message. And as we think about our own lives and maybe our own journeys of faith, probably for each one of us here, we can think of our own key tipping points, our own key milestones in our journey of faith that have brought us to where we are today. They might be really hard events that we walk through. They might be fantastic answers to prayer. Maybe for some of us, they actually feel like dim, distant memories because we're here this morning feeling tired, feeling a bit ragged in our faith. But yet we look back and we know that that was that event where actually we really saw Jesus at work. And there are times when we can hold on to that. Maybe you might even be here this morning and you might not yet be a Christian. 
but your key milestone might be whatever it is that brought you here this morning, or whoever it was that brought you here this morning, to be part of our church family and to hear something more of the Jesus that maybe you're just beginning to explore. When we skip back a few chapters before we get to this point of great persecution, in chapter six we see that actually there was a different model of church to all these people who had been scattered uh, and were now sharing their faith. It was very much uh, a church that was led by the 12 apostles. It talks of in uh, Acts chapter six of these 12 guys who were there, they were doing the main ministry of the word. They were witnessing, they were sharing their faith. It wasn't a group of people uh, all actively thinking they were being evangelists and teachers, although many probably naturally were. It was this group of 12 who led the church brilliantly, fantastically, seeing the church growing and growing. But as the great persecution hits the church, suddenly we have a group of believers who essentially are on the run. This wasn't a great big planned evangelistic outreach program. This wasn't a group of people who sat down and said, right guys, Jesus said we've got to get to Samaria, we've got to get to Judea, let's go. This is how we're gonna do it. These are the tracks we're gonna be handing out. This was simply a group of men and women who were on the run, who were fleeing for their lives, and so fled into the surrounding areas, taking with them the message of Jesus, which they had already heard, and which they felt so passionately about growing in their own lives. You know, this was an event which reached down into the heart of the early church, in its safer confines of Jerusalem, where it was growing fantastically and amazingly, but shattered it out into the, uh, into the surrounding areas. It didn't end the church. It suddenly spread the church and grew the church. The power which had kind of laid with the key teachers of these 12 apostles suddenly was shifted downwards to the ordinary people who may never have stepped into these roles, who may never have found themselves in a place of sharing their faith to the level that actually they ended up doing. In chapter eight, we read of Philip and all the incredible work that he did, and we'll look specifically a bit more at Philip at the moment. Philip essentially is the first person that we read of in the early church who took this counter kind of message, this cross-cultural message out to the non-Jewish people with amazing, incredible results. But yet back in chapter six, we read in verses two to four, so the 12, the 12 apostles gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men and women from among you who are known to be full of the spirit of wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to the prayer and ministry of the word. And then it goes on to say that Philip was one of these people chosen. A really important job that Philip was chosen to do. Essentially, Philip was one of the people who was chosen to head up one of the first food banks. He was there to hand out the food, to support the poor, to give the food to the widows, is what it talks of in the passages you read on a little bit further. And this was obviously seen as a really important job. It's not something flippant that they say, yeah, we don't want to do this anymore, just get some other guys to do it. They pray about it. They seek wise people to do this job. But essentially, the apostles chose the people to do this other really important job, to free them up so they could continue teaching and witnessing and sharing the word. Philip was not chosen because they thought he was an evangelist. He was not chosen because they thought he was a guy who would go out and share his faith in incredible ways. 
He was chosen because he was a man of integrity and wisdom who they knew would be a great person to support the poor and to free them up to do that which they knew God had called them to do. And actually, that might really resonate with some of us here. We maybe don't feel like we are an evangelist or we're somebody who could share our faith or who we feel that God has called to witness in our faith. I know for me, put me in front of hundreds of people, I'll happily share my faith with anybody, but put me one-on-one with a really good friend who doesn't yet know Jesus, and that feels way out of my comfort zones. To actually talk about the impact that Jesus made in my life in a one-on-one way, I don't find that easy at all. And yes, there are people who are called to share their faith in incredible ways. It says that in the Bible, some are called to be evangelists. But what we're talking about here are not those people. These are just the ordinary people who would come to know Jesus in their lives and were doing other jobs, but in the midst of persecution and in the midst of hard times, found themselves scattered in surrounding areas and sharing something of the faith that they had grown to love. It was a really beautiful example of God taking an unexpected time and an unexpected person to use them to do extraordinary things. Philip was an unexpected person. He wasn't one of the 12. He wasn't one of the teachers. It was an unexpected time, huge persecution, that many thought would end the church. And yet God took Philip out of his comfort zones, put him somewhere else, and actually did incredible, extraordinary things through him. He probably didn't feel like an extraordinary guy. He felt like a regular guy but yet God used him to do incredible, incredible things. In chapter eight, we read that as he took the message to Samaria, uh, it says that, but when they, when they believed Philip as he breached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon, who was a, a sorcerer, uh, someone who was very far away from Jesus in his walk, uh, says that Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. The really incredible part of this story as well is where it was that Philip went. Philip finds himself in Samaria. And as Andy uh, so kind of beautifully explained in in our all-age section earlier in the service, the Samaritans and Jews were not people who got on. These were not people who had respect for one another, who had love for one another. If Philip has stayed in Jerusalem, he may never have spoken to a Samaritan person in his whole life, because it didn't happen. There wasn't that sense of cross-cultural communication. They were despised people groups who didn't get on. And yet, here we have Philip in Samaria, surrounded by Samaritan people, simply sharing the love of Jesus that he has grown to know in his own heart. And a beautiful pointer back to the teachings of Jesus. Back to Jesus when he met the Samaritan woman at the well. And he said to her, you know, essentially, I want you to know me. I want you to know how valued you are. I want you to know the love that I have for you. And we have this Samaritan woman at the well who is seen by many as a sinner, as someone who's done awful things. And she's saying, Jesus, why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. Why would we be talking to each other? I'm a woman. Why would you be talking to me? Yet Jesus doesn't see that distinction. He just sees someone who is a child of God and says, my message is for everybody. And then he goes on to later tell, as Andy shared with us, the story of the Good Samaritan, teaching those around him in the culture in which he was teaching that actually there isn't a distinction in God's sight. He sees everybody as equal. This message was for everybody. 
that in the story that we all probably uh, know so well from different places at school or growing up, the Jewish guy gets beaten up and all the people who you expect to stop for him, uh, the priests and others, don't stop. And yet along comes the Samaritan and the listening Jewish uh, people around would have gone, what, the Samaritan's not gonna stop? They're probably gonna kick him or spit on him and yet it's the Samaritan who stops. You know, Jesus gave countercultural teaching of the way the, he was sharing a message that was for everybody. And here is Philip beautifully modeling this, an unexpected guy in unexpected times being used by God very simply, but to do extraordinary things. As we've looked at this series over the past few weeks, looking at the kind of idea of dangerous faith, and as we've explored more and more uh, the persecuted church across the whole of the um, world today, actually we see story upon story of people who have done unexpected things in unexpected times. Pastors who have been thrown into jail, where many have thought this is the end, they've been thrown into jail. And yet in jail they have shared their faith and they have seen many, many people coming to faith as well. Children standing up for what they believe in the school playground and facing horrible consequences, but yet having such a deep-rooted love for Jesus, they couldn't not but share something of that which they knew about how much he loved them. Probably for each one of us here as well, we might have our own examples of times where we have seen God use unexpected people to do unexpected things, but actually with extraordinary consequences. Many years ago when my uh, nan was very poorly just before she um, died, she was in hospital for quite a long time. My nan wasn't from a family that had any Christian faith whatsoever, which was actually quite unusual in those times. She grew up, she never went to church, not at Christmas, not at Easter. And my family didn't have any sort of faith whatsoever. Um, that side of my family, kind of nobody was a Christian. And she went into hospital very poorly, and unfortunately she went into a coma. So for three weeks before uh, she died, she was in a coma. And there was a nurse who was a Christian. Uh, that didn't really mean loads to most of us at that time. But she said to us, oh, do you mind if I just occasionally, when I'm just with Mrs. Claydon, sometimes I just hold her hand and I say a little prayer. And you know, it, it kind of in a hospital setting, that's fine, because you're like, yeah, great, whatever. It didn't really mean much to us, this nurse saying that. It was a really simple thing that she did. She was working, she was in her job. She quite clearly did not spend hours praying and interceding over my nan. It probably was as simple as she was, you know, changing her sheets or moving her, holding her hand, maybe just saying the simplest, tiniest of prayer. My nan was in a coma for three weeks. Before she died, she woke up for about six hours. The nurse who was on duty when she woke up said to her, welcome back, Mrs. Claydon, where have you been? And my nan simply replied, which is one of the last things she ever said, I've been with Jesus this whole time. Now at that time, that didn't mean loads to me because I wasn't a Christian. But now I look back and I think, wow, what grace God had that in such an unexpected time, in those final few hours, weeks of my nan's life, God used an unexpected person, just a nurse who was simply on duty, who had the grace and love in her heart just to simply hold someone's hand and say, God's with you, Mrs. Clayton, to actually bring my nan into a journey where now I'm sure she's rejoicing in heaven with God. And I find that such a massive encouragement for so many people because actually we don't end up knowing where everybody goes. But God is with people right until that last minute, right until that last minute because it's unexpected things that God can do through unexpected people in completely unexpected ways. I'm sure for each of us as well, we can think of those times, those really kind of unexpected things that have happened. 
And as we read about this kind of persecution, as we read about this event that actually probably hoped by many would end the church, but actually ended up growing the church in incredible ways in Judea, in Samaria, and then again, kind of to the very ends of the earth. There were incredible things taking place, as there are throughout the whole world, as we've looked at throughout this series of the persecuted church. And it probably draws very different responses from each of us as to how it makes us feel. For some of us, it might feel like a real encouragement. How incredible that God can do this in the midst of persecution. God can still be so massively at work in incredible ways, more than we could possibly imagine. Maybe it stirs within us a desire to pray for these nations that are currently still undergoing persecution. Maybe it becomes a mass encouragement to share our own faith and to get alongside people and talk about what it is that Jesus has done in our lives. But if we're really honest, probably for a lot of us here this morning, there is that sense of maybe even discouragement. That sense of, I could never do this. I couldn't share what I know. I feel tired this morning. I feel a bit ragged. I feel a bit weary in my faith. Where God has scattered me in my day-to-day, in my place of work, in the school playground, with my friends, with my family, I couldn't be like these people here. But actually, if we look at the early persecuted church, and if we look at the church now throughout the world, which is massively growing, often in places are facing more persecution, they simply have one thing in common, that they love Jesus, that they are spending time with Jesus, that they are spending time discipling one another, walking alongside one another, championing one another. It's not about big, massive programs or events. It's about people who are just falling in love with Jesus and that actually they can't help but let others see that because it's their heart growing towards Jesus and as that happens, an overpouring of that happens in the people around them. This was a brilliant example of people taking their unique DNA without any programs, without any agendas, but changing people's lives. They took these four-year-olds and they essentially put them into this old people's home. And actually, yesterday, there was a news report on the BBC News website about more kind of places where this is happening. So this is really taken off now, into putting kids into old people's homes, both for the children and for the old people. It's a beautiful, beautiful documentary where we see a bunch of four-year-olds who have no agenda, who have no program, who didn't stand in the corner and go, right, you, you, you get over there, you get him to join in the egg and spoon race, then we've done our mission. Okay, us three, we're going to invite those guys to stay and play, and if they come next week, we've won. It wasn't like that at all. They didn't have an agenda. They were four-year-olds, and they were hanging out, and they were having the time of their life. The guy, I don't know if you can remember who they interviewed, and he said, I don't think this will make any difference to me whatsoever. And then you see him rolling around on the floor in the kind of the next clip. Uh, In an interview I saw with him, he was a lovely guy called Hamish. Uh, They said to him, why is it that you thought this would make no difference? And he said, oh, it would make no difference. I don't think it would make any difference to me. I've got a wooden leg. And it was, it was made of wood, and it kind of went from here right to his toe. And he said, I wear shorts, and the kids are going to be really put off. They're not going to want to come near me because I've got this wooden leg. And, you know, to relate to a four-year-old, you have to roll around on the floor. And why would I be able to do that? I've got a wooden leg. And when you watch the documentary, these kids love it. They come running in. They're like, wow, Hamish's leg is so cool. And they're bashing it, and they don't care. It's the best thing they've ever seen. And Hamish loves it because for the first time, he's not self-conscious, because the kids don't see a wooden leg. They've just seen this thing, which is brilliant. And then we see him on the floor, recognizing that he can do it. Of course he can. And at the end, he's the one who's there saying, this has changed my life. 
because I've smiled and I have laughed in the last two weeks in a way I never have done. What a beautiful example for us of knowing Jesus, that it's not about programs, it's not about agendas, it's not about having the right words to say, it's simply about knowing that because Jesus loves you and because he wants to grow closer and closer in relationship with you, actually that can overspill into the lands and the nations and the people groups that you have found yourself scattered. For my birthday last year, uh, John took me as a surprise to an escape room. Has anyone ever done an escape room here? Apart from the people that went with me. Um, So we went to an escape room. I'd never heard of it before. Essentially, with a group of uh, four other friends, you get locked in a room and you have an hour to escape. There's loads of puzzles and riddles and clues to solve. And uh, five of the six of us who went here today, and I can proudly say we escaped within three minutes of the hour running up. So that was a glorious achievement for us all, to which we were very proud. Within 24 hours of having done that escape room, because it was so much fun, two lots of my friends who I worked with at Riverside House had booked in to do exactly the same escape room. Not because I went on a marketing course about how to book into escape rooms, but because I loved it so much. We had the best fun. It was so much fun. And Dan and Andy didn't fall out, which was incredible. That in itself was a miraculous event that didn't happen. They're quite different, although good friends. I just wanted to share it with people because I'd had so much fun and I had just done it. And as I was preparing this talk, I thought, you know what, that's what it's about, isn't it? It's about us giving ourselves the time to really spend with Jesus, to disciple ourselves, to be like these guys in the early church were who had seen Jesus, who had walked with Jesus. And we're at a really key significant point in our church life to be able to do that. That time for us to say, as a church family across all of our sites, we want to spend time with Jesus. Because the more we know him in our lives, the more we know this incredible message and really grasp again what the message is that we can be called sons and daughters of God, that we can know him now and we can know him forever in eternity, the more we really grapple with that afresh, anew, again, the more the love for Jesus will grow in our hearts and the more we will take that into all of the areas that we've been scattered. Not with agendas, not with the best words, not with the action plan of what to do, but simply because we're just being ourselves, scattered in the places in which Jesus has found us. You know, we've got this brilliant 40-day Daniel fast coming up, a great opportunity for us together corporately to pray and to seek God and to know him in our lives and to pray for the lives of those around us. The next teaching series that we've got coming up, um, have I got some good news for you? A brilliant teaching series where we're going to be going back to basics, the fundamentals of the Christian faith, to really relearn for ourselves what it is and why it is that we believe what we do, but also to be able to say to others, if you want to find out a bit more about this faith, come along. A really key, brilliant time in our own lives. And so just as we close, and um, we're going to move into a time of communion in a moment, let's remind ourselves that the early church faced a time that many thought would end the church. For Saul, this persecution, he hoped and he thought would end the church. But rather than end the church, it scattered the church. And in scattering the church, it scattered men and women who simply took the love of Jesus with them. And as we move into this time of communion, maybe let's just use it as a time to rethink, where is it that I have been scattered? Where is it that I'll be on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday for the rest of this week? Who is it of the people that I'm going to see? 
not so we can say the right words or so we can Bible drop a few verses. If you want to do that, great. That might be your gift. But actually, it might be that you simply are someone who says, I want to love the unlovable. I want to look out for the mum in the playground who looks really low and just go over and where she needs that extra hug. Maybe it's just going and hanging out with people. And even for some of us, just having the boldness to say, yeah, I went to church yesterday. It was all right. The coffee was quite good. Whatever it is that we can take the love and the truth of the message that Jesus has given us and share it with those around us. To do really unexpected things in unexpected times, but knowing that God takes the smallest grain and uses it in extraordinary ways. I'm just going to pray and then I'm going to hand over to Judy who's going to lead us in a time of communion. Father God, I want to thank you so much that you are a God who loves us more than we can possibly imagine. And I pray for each one of us here, whether this morning we sit here feeling full of faith, feeling so close to you, feeling like we are running this journey so brilliantly, or whether we sit here broken at the end of ourselves, tired, ragged, whether we're here and maybe we don't yet know you in our lives and we're just exploring what it is to see this guy, this person called Jesus. I pray, Father, that we would know the truth, that you're a God who simply loves us, and that because you love us so much, and because you desire so much for us to be in relationship with you, that actually, Lord, we would let that grow in our hearts, and that through that we would be like these men and women of the early church, scattered in all different directions, but yet taking with us the knowledge that we are loved by a God who is faithful, who is with us, and who runs every moment of this journey with us in the good and the bad times.